Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Earl. Thank you to Jocelyn, Caleb, and to V for their wonderful leading of our worship this morning as well as we've been worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth all morning. Thanks for the guys in the sound booth uh, do such a great job. They helped us through a couple of glitches this morning, so we praise God for all of his servants here at Crossview. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before your mighty throne this morning in prayer. We come not in our own righteousness, but clothed in the perfect righteousness of your Son. We approach your throne with boldness because you invite us to. And we pray for your mighty power to be evident in our midst here this morning. May your spirit do a mighty work in each heart. You know what needs to be done in each heart here, Lord. We pray that you do it. And we pray that your word would go forth in power, not because of the speaker, but because your word, you promise, will not return to you void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many centuries ago, in the summer of 1505, a young German man was walking through the countryside and got caught in a violent thunderstorm. When a bolt of lightning suddenly struck the ground near him, he actually cried out to the heavens, Help me, and I will become a monk. So although this young man's father had planned for him to go to law school, he, true to his vow, entered a monastery as a Roman Catholic monk. As he studied and served, this young man was terrified of the thought of God as his judge. And so he tried to earn God's favor by a life of, of stern discipline, including hours every day spent confessing his sins. Not surprisingly, his soul was weighed down by the burden of his sin and by the condemnation that he felt. Well, as this young man progressed through his religious training, he first became a priest and then a professor of religion at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. He was initially assigned to the task of teaching philosophy, but seemed better fitted to teach the Bible. And so he first of all uh, taught in the Psalms and then they assigned him the book of Romans. And as God would have it, as he studied in Romans 1, he came to verses 16 and 17, which Dan preached on several weeks ago. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, it was this passage that the Lord used to open this young man's eyes to the truth that no, we are not justified by our own good works and obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. As this great truth dawned on this Roman Catholic professor, his heart was opened. And in his own words, he said, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. And so that is how he described his salvation. Now, you, Some of you may be asking, well, who is this young German man that Glenn is talking about? 
Some of you probably know his name was Martin Luther. And it was through Luther and the Protestant Reformation that God restored the great doctrine of of justification by faith. Something Luther felt so strongly about that he described it as the article by which the church stands or falls. Well, today in Romans chapter 4 and, and verses 1 through 12, Paul continues his emphasis on justification by faith. Something Dan introduced to us in chapters 1 through 3, in which Chris continued to develop so well last Sunday, and will continue to be the focus in chapter 4 and then into chapter 5. But why? Why does Paul spend so much time in Romans and in the other New Testament letters emphasizing justification by faith? Why is this so important? Well, as one person put it, justification by faith answers the question, what must I do to be saved? In fact, the same individual said, if you don't have it, you don't have the gospel. And so that is why we've titled our current series, Romans, Experiencing the Gospel Together, because in Romans, Paul absolutely centers us in the gospel. I'd like to begin today with a a great definition of justification by faith, and it's by a man uh, who we love, Dane Ortland, who wrote the book uh, Gentle and Lowly and just highly, highly respected. Ortland describes justification this way. He says, it is the verdict of full acquittal on the basis of Christ's finished work received through the hungry, empty hands of faith apart from any human contribution. And so if you would, would you please turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 4. It's page 913 in your pew Bible. And we're going to be reading again verses 1 through 5. And thank you again, Earl, for reading this passage so well. Romans 4.1 says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, in this first verse here of Romans 4, Paul draws our attention to a man named Abraham. And some of you may not be that familiar with Abraham. Who is, who is Abraham, you might be asking? And what does he have to do with justification by faith? Question. Let's find out. And to answer that question, we need to go back to the book of beginnings. Back to Genesis, if you will. Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 9. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, it's Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, it says here, he's, known, he's identified as Abram here, later on Abraham. In Romans, he's identified as Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. 
and all peoples on, on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now, if we were to actually to go back to Genesis chapter 11, we would find out that Abraham was actually born in ancient Babylon in a city called Ur. That's where modern-day uh, um, Iraq is. And although he and his father, Terah, eventually moved up and settled in Haran, or in what is now southeast Turkey, it was there in Haran that the Lord called Abram to leave his home and go to the land, as it says here, the Lord says that I will show you. In other words, I want you to leave what has always been home for you and go to a place that I'm not going to tell you about right now, but eventually I will show you. It would be like God telling my wife Sarah and I to, to pack a U-Haul and, and head out of the driveway and head out of the town telling us, I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I'll direct you as you go. That'd be a real step in faith if we were to obey uh, God in that. But incredibly, Abram believed God and his promise, and he went. Abram literally forsook everything to follow the Lord. He didn't know where he was going, but he acted upon what the Lord commanded him and his promise, and so off he went. Bible commentator and theologian Derek Kidner said that he exchanged the known for the unknown. He exchanged the known for the unknown. And one thing that this shows us here is that a step of faith isn't always safe and it isn't always easy. Sometimes God calls us to truly step out in faith even though we may be stepping into the unknown. Now, when we think of somebody stepping out in faith, we often think of the person who's, who uh, quits a successful career to pursue full-time ministry or to go to the mission field. But sometimes God calls us in our everyday, normal, quote-unquote, normal lives to, to take a step of faith into the unknown. Sometimes God does that in our lives as well. For example, say there's a young couple both with very good jobs, and then they start having children. And then they decide that it's God's will that one spouse stay at home with the kids, even though it will mean a significant hit in income. Some of you have probably been there. Not everyone's able to do that, but some are. That, too, can be a step of faith into the unknown, trusting God that he will provide for you, taking that step of faith. Or maybe you see a need in the community for volunteers. You know, we've talked about Mary's place. We've talked about 
Hannah Center. Uh, maybe uh, you're asked to coach your kids baseball or softball or soccer team, even though you've never done anything like that before. But you want to shine the light of Christ into our community. And so you step out in faith, trusting God that he's going to enable you to do what seems very difficult or impossible for you. Placing your faith in Jesus is a step into the unknown. Turning from your old life of sin and rebellion to everything that you've known and turning to him in faith, believing that when he died on the cross approximately 2,000 years ago, that he paid the penalty in full for your sins. And now you're placing your life in his hands. That obviously is stepping out in faith, right? And again, this is what Abraham did. He stepped out in faith. In the book of Hebrews, which is towards the back of the New Testament, chapter 11, uh, there's a description of how Abraham stepped out in faith. It's in a chapter that is full of Old Testament men and women who stepped out in faith. And there's actually a definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. But it describes it this way in Hebrews 11.8. It says, By faith Abraham... When called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so he was looking to the eternal. And he trusted in God, and he trusted in his promise, and so off Abraham went. But how does this relate, then, to justification by faith? Well, if we were to go back to Genesis, Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, it says there that, that he, God, took him, that is Abram, outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and this is one of the key phrases in our, 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 our sermon this morning. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by faith. He believed in the Lord and his promise to him, and the Lord credited or accounted it to him as righteousness. And so that's why on this Father's Day, and happy Father's Day to all of you dads, we recognize Abraham as the father of faith because early on in Genesis, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Well, this leads us back then to Romans 4, where Paul now ties in Abraham, having been justified by faith, to our being justified by our faith or through our faith in Jesus Christ. We read again in our passage in Romans chapter 4 and verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Now, the Jewish people, they revered Abraham. He was the forefather of the nation of Israel. So you can almost see Paul thinking here as he writes this first verse, well, what about Abraham? Was he justified by the works of the law, this, this great man, this hero of the nation of Israel? 
Well, the answer to that is no. We read in verse 2, If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Abraham could not earn salvation before God, and neither can we. Why? None of us is good enough. If you look back at Romans 3, as we looked at that last week, verses 10 through 12, listen to the words of Paul again. It says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Pretty inclusive, isn't it? And then verse 23, we would add, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only perfect obedience could gain someone acceptance before God. Even one sin disqualifies us. Say, theoretically, that you lied to your mom way back in grade school, and that was the only sin that you ever committed. Well, that one sin would disqualify you from earning God's favor in your own righteousness. That one sin, if that was the only sin you ever committed. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. That's what the Bible says. There's only one person in history who obeyed God's command perfectly, and that is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. If Abraham or anyone else could earn their salvation by good works, we would have something to boast about but not before God. In fact, we rob God of his glory when we claim that we're pretty good people and that our good deeds far outweigh our bad, and so we think that on that basis, God is going to accept us, that that God is going to grant us salvation and eternal life because in the scales of our life, the good we say outweighs the bad. That's not what we're finding here. Again, if we can earn God's favor by our good works, then why did he have to send his son into the world to redeem us and go to the cross and pay the penalty in full for our sins? Why did Jesus have to come and die if we have even a small part to play in our salvation? The fact is we don't. The fact is we can't. Every other religion in the history of the world up to the present day other than biblical Christianity, seeks to gain God's or their God's favor by good works. doesn't matter if we're, whether we're talking about false religions like, like Islam or cults like Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, believe Jesus Christ was a created individual. They identify him with Michael the archangel. They deny his deity or the fact that he was and is God. They deny the Trinity, and they believe that salvation is dependent in part on what man does. Even the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that they must cooperate with the process of justification through good works. Do you hear the difference there? The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church says, Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life. That is completely 
contradictory to what we are learning this morning about justification by faith alone. And so we pray for our Roman Catholic loved ones. We pray for our Roman Catholic friends that their eyes would be open and that they would see the truth of the gospel. Again, just another example of seeking to earn God's favor through a system of good works. Well, this would be the response of the Apostle Paul to that. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. So again, Abraham was not justified by works. We've, we've established that. He was justified by faith. That's what we see here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same for us. Our justification is, again, not by works. That's the emphasis in verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. You know, when you put in two weeks of really hard work for your employer and he or she then pays you for that really hard work, you don't look at that as a gift. You earned those wages. You worked really hard to earn that two weeks wages. But we don't earn or can't earn or merit justification. It is a gift of God's grace through faith in his son. If we try to earn God's favor by good works or by religious activities or the fact that we've been going to a church for years or we, we take communion when it's offered or whatever, if we try to earn God's favor by any sort of good works, we will forever be debtors before God. And again, that describes all of the world's religions except for biblical Christianity. Maybe some of you can relate to some of what we're talking about in your religious past, in your religious upbringing. Maybe some of you felt at one time like Martin Luther, a perpetual debtor to God. You weren't experiencing any freedom. You weren't experiencing any joy. You had no peace, just a sense of bondage and guilt and always trying to do more but always falling short, just going through the motions. But just as Luther found freedom and deliverance and forgiveness through the good news of the gospel in his reading in Romans 1.17, we find good news in our passage here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. And here it is again. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You see, it's not that our self-righteousness could ever be good enough, but it says here that God justifies the ungodly. That was all of us. That was certainly me. The ungodly, sinful, living my life independently from God. But listen to what Paul says over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. He writes there, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this While we were still sinners, 
while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith as our Savior and Lord, our faith is credited to us as righteousness. In other words, sin and guilt were on the debit side of our life's ledger. There was nothing on the credit side. But through faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Meaning that the unpayable debt that we owed God because of our sin was paid for us at the cross by Jesus Christ. And we receive his perfect righteousness. When I read this and think about it, I think, amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent his son into the world in love. His son willingly went to the cross and took upon himself the full penalty for our sin, the wrath that we so richly deserve. He took it all upon himself. Jesus paid it all. That's what we were just singing. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called that the great exchange. He became sin for us. We become the righteousness of God in him. That's justification by faith. So if you are in Christ, your sin debt is gone. And Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to you, credited to your account, if you will. We've been justified by faith if we're in Christ. And, then, and, and as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith at that one moment in time where you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, he says now, we have peace, relational peace, positional peace with God now and for all eternity. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is good news. And so the results of our justification, again, are the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us. Our sins are forgiven. That's the point in verses 6 through 8 of our passage in Romans chapter 4. He quotes David here. He says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He writes, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never, ever, ever count against them. That's salvation. In fact, our justification is so complete that according to J.I. Packer, nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity that will make God change his mind. God is never going to change his mind if you've been justified by faith. God justifies you, so to speak, with his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you 
for Jesus' sake, and the verdict that he passed then was final. The final verdict. Forgiven, perfect righteousness credited to your account. That's what happened when you were justified by faith. So as we wrap this up this morning, for those of you who are in Christ, rest in your salvation. Rest in him. What did Jesus say? Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. That's what we're talking about. That's salvation. Rest for your souls. For, so for those of you who are in Christ, rest in him, knowing that you live before God, accepted in the beloved. That is, accepted in Jesus Christ. Clothed not in your own righteousness, that'll never gain you acceptance before God, but in the perfect righteousness of the Son of God. And preach the gospel to yourself every day. That might sound kind of strange. Remind yourself, preach the gospel to yourself every day, reminding yourself of your acceptance before God. For so many of us, that's a struggle, isn't it? You know, sometimes we live on that good day, bad day performance treadmill where too often we gauge our relationship with God based upon whether we had a good time in God's word and prayer or not in the morning or whether I had a good day at work or not or whether I had a good day with the kids or not or whether I shared my faith or not. And so we kind of gauge our relationship with God based upon this sort of performance treadmill that we can never get off. Rather, we say with the Apostle Paul that our heart's desire is to be found in him, that is to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, rest in him. Rest in his salvation. He made that great invitation to you. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. So rest in him. But for those here today or watching online who have up to this moment wrongly believed that you will be accepted before a holy God based upon your own self-righteousness, and you've never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, today could be your day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you have never come to Jesus Christ and received him as your Savior and Lord, today could be the day. He's calling out to you through the proclamation of the gospel. When the Bible speaks, Jesus speaks. And so that's what we're looking at today. And so I urge you, if you've never come to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins. Stop trusting in your own righteousness. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty in full for your sins and then rose from the dead. And if you do so, you will be justified. Again, meaning that Christ's perfect righteousness has been credited to you, meaning that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and you now have peace with God. That is the message of the gospel. That's why Paul spends so much time emphasizing justification by faith. Let's pray.